0: If you have your Bibles, I do invite you um, to turn to 2 Corinthians, where we are returning. This is, uh, in a certain way, part three of a a series of sermons uh, that began at the end of chapter four, uh, in which Paul was um, describing the need to fix our eyes, not on what is seen, not on the temporary, but on what is unseen that which is eternal. And, and it kind of flows then into this piece. And, and providentially speaking, given all the, the news that we've had and the loss of our beloved sister, um, Karen, and, uh, uh, whose memorial service we just um, celebrated yesterday, um, you know, given all the news that we've had, this is a very timely um, a text uh, uh, from which these sermons have come. So the first one about fixing our eyes on the unseen, on the, that which is eternal. And then last week, um, Paul's telling us that if we're away from the body, uh, we're at home with the Lord. And, and that the Lord has uh, he's established a building for us in the heavens, a building that by the Spirit of God we begin to long for. And that by the Spirit, we begin to experience these little foretastes of that which is to come. And so his application in that section is, now we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk according to the promises that God has given us. And now as we come to these last two verses, um, Paul is now drawing our attention to another key event that is triggered by the return of Christ. Uh, we talk about Christ's return. We, we, we refer to this often as the second coming of Christ, um, given that the first coming was nearly 2,000 years ago. And part of the second coming will be the establishment of a worldwide judgment of all who are either living at the time of his return or who have previously died. With that in mind, would you stand for the reading and hearing of, of the Word of God? This is 2 Corinthians um, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul writes, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for Uh, What is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil? Would you pray with me? O Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. There are two parts um, to this little two-verse uh, passage, um, and the first part is just an admonition. It's an admonition of the way we are to live. That is, we are to live in a manner uh, that is pleasing to God. That's the basic admonition. The, the ground or the reasoning or the basis for this admonition, at least in this passage, is Paul's um, looking forward to that event where he will one day along with the rest of the world, but he will stand before the judge. He will stand before the Lord Christ. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just reverse um, kind of the order of the text and, and deal with the, the, the ground of his application, and that is the, the, that we await a future accounting before Christ. And so we're going to begin with verse 10 and then return to verse 9. Um. Previously, we've talked about the return of Christ, and, and, and what Paul has already described is um, uh, uh, at his return, the Lord Christ will make all things new. At that time, those who have previously died and, and who are in this kind of disembodied state in the presence of God, um, or those who are, you know, died and not in the presence of God, All of those people will be um, reunited with a new uh, resurrected body, a body that will never perish, a body uh, that will not be affected um, by sin. And corresponding to those new resurrection bodies will be a new heavens and earth so that the planet will be made new. And and generally speaking, you know, my view is that that's more of a a renewal, a transformation, not necessarily something completely um, new with no uh, correspondence to what came before. But in addition to those events, there will also be this um, judgment when Jesus returns. And it's a judgment that will include all people, uh, both those who are righteous in Christ uh, and those who must appear without the righteousness of Christ, having died or, or uh, perished in their sins, apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And so um, it's to this judgment that Paul um, draws our attention, and he just begins it very simply when he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not an optional meeting. Um, this is a required uh, uh, date with destiny that all people will one day um, experience. There will be no ability; there, the, you won't have the option to avoid um, this this appearance before the king and before the judge. Uh, the verb to appear here is more than just being present at this judgment. The verb here, to appear, also has the idea of things being made manifest or things being made um, uh, uh, visible. And so part of what's going to happen here is that which has been hidden to human eyes. Um, will be made uh, visible to Christ. Um, it'll be made public so that um, the underlying motivations of our lives or things that we thought were hidden or things that, um, uh, that really lay bare our character, the truth will be uh, made manifest on that day. For non-believers, this means perfect justice will be meted out the sins and crimes of, uh, of all the those who are dying in their sins will be judged and will be perfectly paid for. Um, this also means that the judgment on non-believers will not be the same. There will be degrees of punishment, just as there will be degrees of reward. Um, God is perfectly just. He's, this is not a one-size-fits-all judgment. And Luke, um, um, Jesus says, but the one who did not know, that is, that he disobeyed the master, and still did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This will be a perfect judgment. And in the case of the believer, they too will be judged um, according to their deeds uh, or according to their works. Revelation 20, 12. Uh, John writes, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. So you have this idea of these books being released. And, and if your name is in the book of life, um, then you pass into the eternal kingdom of God. And, and part of that judgment is based on our works. And you say, well, wait, how does this judgment by works, um, according to our works, how does that measure up with our understanding of justification? that when we come to Christ, all of our sins are wiped clean? Well, the answer is this, is that um, part of this, what makes this consistent, is that there are two um, elements that are taking place at the judgment of believers. Number one, it appears that the first element will be that our works flow out of our faith. And so the reason we're judged by our works isn't to condemn, because All of our sins were paid for fully, completely, 100% by Jesus at the cross. One uh, One of the last words that Jesus utters is, it is finished. There's no longer any need of another sacrifice for sins. So the judgment of believers is not a judgment of condemnation. But we are judged by our works because um, that faith, if that faith is genuine, should begin to demonstrate itself in some measure, not perfection, but a measure of Christ-like character and behavior. The Bible insists, the New Testament insists, that if we have genuine faith, it's going to over time, it has to work itself out in a heart that is being changed. It's got to work itself out in the way we think, in the way we speak, in the way we use our time, in the way we treat one another, and in the way we love and worship Christ. So the first reason that believers are to be judged by our works is because it demonstrates that our faith is, um, is genuine We should see things like if the Spirit is present in our lives. The New Testament tells us what that begins to look like. Well, it begins to look like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It begins to look like a person who genuinely hates their sin, who grieves over their sin, it begins to look like a person, um, and and here's a, 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 one of the, the critical attitude that we must demonstrate. It's an attitude of penitence over sin, an attitude of humility before God. Scriptures tell us it gives us this great promise: God opposes the proud, but what gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under his mighty hand that he may exalt you in due time. The critical attitude that we must cultivate is this attitude of penitence over our sin and humility um, before God. We should look more and more like Christ in, in various ways. But what about the potential exposure of sin? I, I like what theologian Wayne Grudem says about this. He writes this, but it should not cause terror or alarm on the part of believers because even sins that are made public on that day will be made public as sins that have been forgiven and thereby they will be the occasion for giving glory to God for the richness of his grace. So the first reason for us to go before the Lord and be judged according to our works, is to demonstrate that our faith was, in fact, genuine. And then second, we are judged uh, not to be condemned, but to see what from our lives will last into eternity. Our works will show how successful we were in storing up treasures in heaven, or not. And so part of the judgment for followers of Jesus uh, will be to see what was commendable, What was deserving of reward? 1 Corinthians um, chapter 3, Paul describes this element of the judgment. He writes, Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it, that is the day of judgment. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Now, for many of us, this idea of rewards is difficult. Um, It's difficult because, well, that feels like a loss to us. We feel like, well, one, you know, Most certainly, there will be others who will get more rewards than um, um, ourselves. And so will that be a difficult um, experience to endure? Um, And and then we feel like, well, if we suffer loss because we didn't do the things that we could that would merit uh, a reward, does that mean that heaven will somehow be um, less than heaven for us? And, and again, um, I, uh, Wayne Grudem um, writes concerning our future reward, and, and, and in, with respect to this question, he says, but we must guard against misunderstanding here. Even though there will be degrees of reward in heaven, the joy of each person will be full and complete for eternity. If we ask how this can be when there are different degrees of reward— It simply shows that our perception of happiness is based on the assumption that um, happiness depends on what we possess or the status or power that we have. In actuality, however, our true happiness consists in delighting in God and rejoicing in the status and recognition that he has given us. I also like how C.S. Lewis describes this. C.S. Lewis says, with respect to rewards and how we understand that. Heaven will be heaven for every believer, for every person that enters into the eternal kingdom. And he likens it to, you know, different people have differing capacities of joy and happiness in heaven, like um, being a different size cup. And so though our cups may be of different size, Every cup will be filled to overflowing with water, with, with joy. And so, in the same way, we can expect, however, the rewards work. And this should motivate us, as it does the Apostle Paul um, heaven will be heaven for all. But the knowledge that, um, that Paul would one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Even if there was to be no condemnation because he knew he was in Christ. Nevertheless, this motivates the apostle to live in a certain direction. This, so the, the, the return of Christ and this judgment seat, this is part of the furniture, uh, in Paul's mindset. And it feels like it was more of a part of the, the mental furniture and, and the spiritual furniture of the early Christians than it is today. But for the Apostle Paul, the recognition that he would stand before the king and his life would be examined, it motivated him to be ready, to be prepared. And this is where verse 9 comes from, where he writes, so whether we are at home or away, that is, whether we're alive or, or dead, we make it our aim to please him. That word, make it our aim. That verb is just a one verb in in Greek. It's it could also be translated: we make it our ambition, and and that to me is a, a better way because we can we can understand what it means to be ambitious in life. We can understand how some people make it their ambition to gain wealth or to gain status or to be gain fame in this life, and they will exert all their energy in that direction. The New Testament says that is not a good ambition to have. The ambition that we are to pursue is this ambition of of being found pleasing before God. And so the Apostle Paul, part of what motivates him is so that when that future day comes, he will be excited to stand before Christ because he knows that as he stands there, but he'll receive the commendation of the Lord Christ Himself. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And he, and he knows that his life is not perfect either, just like as it's true of any saint. But he can also know that he ran the race well. And in the same way, that this serves as a motivation for the Apostle Paul. Well, in the same way, this should be our same, uh, at least part of our motivation. Well, what does pleasing God look like? Let me just briefly share, say four things. Number one, if we want to please God, our highest motivation must be to bring God the glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. This should also lead us to prioritize um, our corporate worship. Because the direct thing that we are doing as we gather together is we are offering explicitly our praises, our prayers, our hearts to the praise and glory of God. Number two, we should seek to obey everything Christ has commanded Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, that is to obey, all that I have commanded you. So we should seek to be obedient to Christ in all things. Number three, Jesus emphasizes within the new covenant this new commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what does it look like to please God? It pleases God when his children get along. (laughs) It pleases God when we are spurring each other on toward love and good deeds. It pleases God, not when we're just seeking our own best interest, but when we are seeking the best interests of others. He loves that. So we seek to please God as we obey the new commandment, love one another. And then the fourth thing is that we should be interested in leading others to Christ so that they too are ready, they are prepared on the day of his return we should cultivate the same tender-hearted concern of God for the plight of the wicked, as we read in Ezekiel 33. The Lord, through the prophet, says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? That should increasingly be our heart's desire, to communicate the love of Christ, the gospel, the good news of Christ to those around us. One day we will appear before Christ at the judgment. Let that serve as a motivation to live in a manner that pleases him. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this brief exhortation, this brief word uh, through the Apostle Paul. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit, by your grace, you would strengthen us in our desire to please you, that we would look forward with confidence and expectation of that day in which we appear before our Savior and our King, in whose name we pray, amen.